Good evening. How are y'all doing tonight? Awesome. Well, I want to welcome all of you here for our Good Friday service as we are here to celebrate and remember the death of Jesus Christ, both in the Word and in communion, which we'll be celebrating together tonight. And so if you're watching us online, we will be taking communion this evening, and so I encourage you to get your communion emblems ready, which we'll be doing that towards the end of the study. And so, you know, Good Friday celebrates an event that is the most pivotal event in all of human history. And over the last 2,000 years, as, as pastors and teachers and preachers have come to share about the crucifixion, um, oftentimes we approach things with, okay, well, last year I said this, and the year before I said that, and, you know, so Lord, give me something unique and fresh and new. And this year, um, the Lord spoke to me, and he goes, the crucifixion hasn't changed. So just share about me on the cross. And so that's what we're going to be doing tonight. But, you know, we call this day... Good Friday, Good Friday. And although the results of what happened on this day were indeed good, and the goodest thing that could possibly happen for us in all of of anything that could happen, the why and the how of Good Friday were anything but good. You know, we're called as Christians to be people who follow and lead and preach the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know, we believe that it is a life-saving truth. And that is why we cherish the gospel so much. And it's a call, it's a message that we're called to share everywhere we go. To tell people about Jesus on the cross and what his death means for them and their salvation. But in many churches in the world today, especially in America, um, sadly the message of the gospel has been watered down to make it more acceptable to people Um, There's a movement in the church called progressive Christianity, which is just aggressively fighting to change the entire narrative of what the gospel is, what the cross was, and what took place there. And we are people that are called to preach it, but we can't just preach the parts of it we like. We are called to share the entire gospel. And there's two sides to the gospel. I have said this in years past, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, has two elements to it. There is obviously the good news of the gospel, but then there is the bad news. The good news of the gospel, that's the stuff that we really, really love to share with people. We love to tell people how much God loves them, which is true. God loves every single person that he's created dearly. We love to tell people how God wants to forgive them of their sins and set them free and grant them eternal life. And these are things that that we love sharing with people, and they are indeed good news. They are the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the flip side of the gospel, the bad news, that which makes the good news good for us and good for the unsaved, is why the good news makes sense. You know, the message of the gospel and the bad news side of it starts with the fact that God created mankind, Adam and Eve, and they existed in a perfect world, in perfect fellowship with God, their creator. But they disobeyed his one and only command that they had for them. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was it. They had free reign in paradise, perfection, and they just had one rule that they ended up breaking. And through that one disobedience, sin entered the world. And when sin entered the world, it corrupted everything, bringing death and decay decay into God's creation, and ultimately forever breaking the fellowship between God and us, his creation. 
This is truly bad news. And we see the corruption of sin all around the world today. So many of us have experienced the corruption of sin in the world today as we have faced challenges in our relationships, challenges at work, as we have difficulties in conflict and hurt and pain that takes place because of sin. And because of sin that now plagues mankind like an incurable disease that is passed down from generation to generation, there was no way for man to be at peace with God. For God is holy. God is perfect, God is just, God is righteous, and sin cannot dwell in his presence, his word tells us. And try as we might, we could not attain the perfect sinlessness required to dwell in God's presence. And so mankind thought, well, if you just gave us the rules, we would follow them and be good. And so God said, okay, well, you couldn't follow one, but let's try 10. And he gave us the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments were a picture from man's point of view of, oh, if we could just follow those ten things perfectly, we would be righteous. We would qualify to be in God's presence. But the problem was is we couldn't follow those Ten Commandments. No human could and no single human ever has. For the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that there are none righteous, no, not one. So then we thought, well, well, I'm not as bad as the person next to me, right? And we're really good at doing that. We like to measure ourselves against a standard of our own creation to make ourselves feel better. And the problem was, as God said, they aren't the standard. They're marred, flawed, sinful people just like you are. I am the standard. My righteousness is the standard by which perfection is measured. And unfortunately, in and of yourself, you don't measure up. So then we thought, well, I've kept some of your laws. Doesn't that count? Right? We've grown up in a system where, you know, you take a test in school, and if you get 8 out of 10, I mean, that's a passing grade. Right? Doesn't that count in the spiritual world? Doesn't that count in God's economy? And God said, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Bad news. The bad news is that on our own before God... We are absolutely without hope. We are absolutely without hope because we are sinners. We are born with a sin nature. It is our nature to disobey God and to seek our own pleasure. And because of that, every good work we do as mankind, every positive thing we try to do is ultimately flawed by our marred nature. And the goodest work The goodest of the good things we could possibly do, the Bible says, compared to the holy standard of God, it's his filthy rags. And so, we stood without excuse, guilty before almighty God. That's the bad news of the gospel. But that's the part of the gospel that makes the good news make sense. The good news that God loves us, the good news that he died for our sin, the good news that he paid the price that we should have paid is because there was a price due that there was no possible way for us to pay. There was a penalty due that we could not fulfill. And so we stood there guilty, fully deserving of his judgment, fully deserving of his wrath. And just as guilty criminals fully deserve the sentence that is due them, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Because we get that concept as humans. When we 
read in the newspaper or magazines or see online on one of the many news sites or wherever, we see somebody that commits a horrible crime, we naturally within us go, they should get what's coming to them. They should be arrested. They should, they should pay the price for what they've done. And the worse the crime is, the more righteous we feel in that, that sense of they should pay, they should go to jail, they should get the death penalty. But we don't often look at our own sin in the same way. We don't often recognize the great cost of our own sin and the penalty that was due for us. And so as the Bible says the wages of sin is death, it also says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And thus, the penalty of sin is the death sentence. That is the penalty for breaking God's law. That's the bad news. That's the bad news of the gospel. But God knew it was bad news. God knew how bad it was, and because he valued you and me so much, because he loved you and me so much, he came up with a plan. He came up with a plan to pay the price, to pay the death penalty sentence on our behalf. By sending the second person of the Trinity to earth, God the Son, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the creator himself came down into his own creation to be born as a man, to live as a man, and to die the death that man deserved. And it was a plan, incidentally, that he laid out and spoke of prophetically through his entire word all the way back to the very beginning of, of anything we have written. From Genesis on, we see the plan of redemption laid out by God over and over again. And so what I want to do tonight is not just remember the death of Jesus Christ as we are gathered here on Good Friday. To not just remember that he died, but to remember how he died. To remember why he had to die that way. To look at really what is the ugly cost of our sin as we see our Lord and Savior perish on the cross for what we've done. And as we do that, that we would not forget that although that was the cost of our sin, it was the purchase of our salvation. It was what cleansed us from all sin. It is the very thing that allows God to look at us as spotless, blameless, forgiven. Hallelujah that Jesus died on the cross for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. God, there is really nothing we could ever do to pay the price that was owed for our sin. Lord, there was nothing we could ever do to make up for the error that we have committed, the sin we have committed, Lord. God, there was nothing we could do for the so many times that we directly and intentionally disobey you to seek our own, our own pleasure, our own way, our own will. And yet, God, as we have tried to come up with standards of our own to make ourselves feel better, to, to come up with people in mankind, come up with false religions to, to paint a different picture. Lord, people come up with ways to try and earn their way to heaven. The reality, God, is that you are holy and you are just. And that no matter what we did, we could never pay the price for our sin. And God, we are here tonight to celebrate that you paid the price that you came to this earth, lived as a man, a perfect man without sin, and then died the most horrible death ever, not just for one person, but for all of mankind who would ever exist. That God, you were the atoning sacrifice laid on the altar for us, that we would have the opportunity to be forgiven, to walk free in relationship and fellowship with you. 
And so, Lord, as we call this day Good Friday, we do embrace the truth that it is good because of what it did for us, what it, it, it purchased in our lives, God. But, Lord, that we would never get flippant about sin, that we would never get cavalier about sin, but we would always remember on this night the cost of our salvation. We thank you so much. We love you. And, Lord, we want to open tonight with worshiping your holy name. God, we praise you. You are God Almighty. You are the one who loves us. You are the one who died for us. You are the one who saves us. And we say thank you. God, we honor you tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, tonight we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 13, if you want to turn there or swipe there. But I'm starting in verse 13 because it starts right there where it says, Again, they shouted, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over, handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. Now at this point in the story of the crucifixion, Jesus had already been interrogated by the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and found innocent. Pilate couldn't find any guilt in him, any crime of any kind. But it tells us to appease the crowd, he gave Jesus over. Because the crowd was getting rowdy, and they were getting loud, and they wanted what they wanted. And they were demanding that this Jesus would be crucified. And so it tells us that Pontius handed him over to be scourged and crucified. Now here in the CSB, it uses the word flogged. But you guys might be more familiar with the word scourged. This was a precursor to the death on the cross and a form of punishment that was meant to be another way to appease the crowds and to enact um, confessions out of people. The Romans at the time, when they would scourge people, what they would do is they would tie people to a post, wrapping their arms around the post, and whip them across the back with what was called a flagellum, or known as a flesh-eating whip. This whip was called a flesh-eating whip because it was uh, two or three leather strips gathered together with a handle. And in the leather strips, there was found small pieces of iron and brass and sharp metal, uh, sharp pieces of bone that were intended to not just lash the back, but to grab into the flesh and rip the flesh off of the victim as that whip was pulled back. Now, ironically, the Romans would, would sentence you to a certain amount of whips and then go, well, we're going to do minus one to that number as a way to be merciful. But Jesus, just to satisfy the bloodthirsty crowd, was given over to be scourged. And as he was whipped over and over and over again, his skin was just ripped open. He was brutalized. Great chunks of flesh were torn from him as he was whipped. And after that scourging, it tells us that he was beaten severely. 
Now when you read about this part of the crucifixion story about Jesus getting beaten by these bloodthirsty soldiers, that to me is a picture of the evil that is in mankind. As an innocent person would stand before them, one declared innocent by the governor, they would still want to beat this person mercilessly. Now in the gospel accounts, it doesn't really give us the depth of detail of what Jesus went through in that beating, but in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, in prophecy of this event, it tells us that he was so disfigured that he did not look like a man. That's a beating that is severe. And so it tells us they hit him on the head with a stick, but they beat him to the point of unrecognizability. It also tells us in the prophecies that he was spit on and his beard was ripped out from his face. Isaiah chapter 50, verse six. Prophetically, it says, I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. And that's exactly what the gospels record that they did to him. It tells us there that this was all done to mock him because people were claiming that he was the king of the Jews. Just a week before this, he had ridden into Jerusalem on the, on the donkey, fulfilling prophecy from Zechariah 9.9, making a very clear statement to the Jews that this was your coming king, this was your Messiah arriving on the day exactly prophesied. But the soldiers here now were mocking that statement. And it says they twisted these thorns into a crown and jammed it upon his head and put a purple robe on him and mocked him as king as they would strike him across the face and strike him in the head with a stick and then bow down, Almighty King, we worship you, and then continue to beat him and then mock him again, Almighty King. And again, this was a man who was declared innocent by Pilate three times. Declared by a Roman governor innocent. One who desperately sought his release who brought out a murderer named Barabbas, thinking surely the people won't want this convicted murderer released out to the streets. But they said, no, we would rather have that than the spotless lamb of God. We would rather have that than this one who proclaims himself as Jesus, as the king. And so now he's completely rejected by the Jewish people in favor of a murderer and led out to be crucified. Verse 21, it tells us that they forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. It was customary for a criminal condemned to die on the cross that they would be forced to carry the crossbeam of their cross um, all the way from the flogging site to the place where they would be crucified. This crossbeam would typically weigh upwards of 100 pounds and it would be laid across their shoulders where they would have to carry this after the severe beating and scourging, after the blood loss, after the wounds inflicted by all of that. And so there would be a processional led out to the execution site. And this processional would be led by a complete Roman military guard because Rome wanted to make sure that everybody knew that they were in control that they were the power behind the throne, that they were the ones who dictated life and death. And this processional was headed by a centurion just to be a massive Roman show of force. Part of this processional, one was carrying a sign on which the condemned's name and crime were written, and we have that recorded elsewhere in the Gospels. And Jesus already being weak from the beating, already being weak from the blood loss, already being weak from what he has gone through, couldn't carry the crossbeam. And so it's recorded for us here in Mark that he stumbled. 
that he couldn't carry it forward, that he couldn't keep going. And so another man uh, close by was forced to carry the cross or carry the cross beam for him. Verse 22, it says, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. It's interesting because if you get a chance to visit Israel today, you can see this very rock that has the face of a skull still in it that has been there all this time. It's very interesting at the base of that rock, the um, uh, Islam authorities there have built a bus station. So you can't go down there unless you're authorized. But you can see this rock from the Garden of Gethsemane and it still has the face of a skull in it just as recorded here in scripture. Verse 23, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. You know, Jesus was going to the cross for your sin and for my sin. Jesus was going to the cross, eyes wide open. Jesus was going to the cross willing to take the full wrath of God in our place. And he wanted to do that without being dulled in any way. This was actually in fulfillment of Psalms chapter 69, verse 21, where he said he refused this because he wanted to be full, um, his senses full so he could take the full measure of what God was pouring out on your sin and my sin. And then in verse 24, it says, then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Again, if you're a student of scripture, you will find that this very gruesome and horrible death was prophesied over and over again. Details that are so specific, for example, in Psalm 22:18, David prophesied a thousand years before this happened. In Psalm 22:18, he said, they divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. Then in verse 25, it tells us that it was now nine in the morning when they crucified him. Other translations, it says it was the third hour when they crucified him. But you might notice if you read in the other gospels that the description of the crucifixion really isn't there. It just says, then he was crucified. They crucified him. But it doesn't really tell us what that meant. Early in my faith, one of the things that solidified my my understanding, my, my, my passion, my thankfulness for Jesus and what him dying on the cross meant to me was when I heard a speaker come into church once and the speaker was a medical doctor who related the medical perspective on what happened to Jesus on the cross. And I remember hearing that and having a radically enhanced understanding of what the cost of my sin was. Because at that point, I was familiar with the fact that, oh yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I had heard that phrase. I had said that phrase. I believed in that phrase. Jesus died on the cross for my sin. But until I heard what this medical doctor shared, I didn't really understand the gravity of what he went through for me. And so I want to read with you, read for you guys um, what it was that he said um, in his medical write-up. He says, crucifixion was invented by the Persians between 300 and 400 B.C., it was perfected by the Romans in the first century BC, and it is arguably the most painful death ever invented by man, and is where we get our term excruciating, which literally means out of the cross. 
It was a death <clears throat> reserved primarily for the most vicious of criminals. The most common device used for crucifixion was a wooden cross, which consisted of an upright pole permanently fixed in the ground with a removable crossbar, usually weighing between 75 to 100 pounds. Victims of crucifixion were typically stripped naked and their clothing was divided by the Roman guards. And in Jesus' case, this was done in fulfillment of Psalm 22:18. As a gesture of Roman kindness, the prisoners were then offered a mixture of vinegar and wine as a mild anesthetic. This anesthetic was refused by Jesus, and consequently, it shows us that he bore the full brunt of God's wrath. The apostle Peter stated of Jesus in 1 Peter 2:24, he himself bore our sins in his own body on that tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. And by his wounds, or by his stripes, you may have heard it in another translation, you have been healed. The victim was then placed on his back and his arms stretched out and nailed to the crossbar. The nails, which were generally about seven to nine inches long, were placed between the bones of the forearm, the radius and the ulna, and the small bones of the hands, the carpal bones. The one who put all this together drew up some medical diagrams to understand the destruction that Jesus went through in his body for us. In ancient terminology, the wrist was considered to be part of the hand, so the nails through the hand would be consistent with the placement through the wrist. The placement of the nail at this point had several effects. First, it ensured that the victim would indeed hang there until they died. Secondly, a nail placed at this point would sever the largest nerve in the hand called the median nerve. The severing of this nerve is a medical catastrophe. In addition to severe burning pain, the destruction of this nerve causes permanent paralysis of the hand. Imagine the pain of hitting your funny bone, but the pain is unceasing and constant. Furthermore, by nailing the victim at this point in the wrist, there would be minimal bleeding and there would be no bones broken. Thus, scripture was fulfilled in Psalm 22:17, which says, I can count all of my bones. And Psalm 34:20, which says, he protects all of his bones, not one of them is broken. The positioning of the feet is probably the most critical part of the mechanics of crucifixion. First, the knees were flexed about 45 degrees, and then the feet were flexed or bent downward an additional 45 degrees until they were parallel to the vertical pole. An iron nail about seven to nine inches long was driven through the feet between the second and third metatarsal bones. In this position, the nail would sever the dorsal pedal artery of the foot, but the resultant bleeding would be insufficient to cause death. The resulting position on the cross then set up a horrific sequence of events which resulted in a slow and very painful death. Having been pinned to the cross, the victim now had an impossible position to maintain. With the knees flexed at about 45 degrees, the victim must bear the weight, bear his weight with the muscles of his thighs. However, this is an almost impossible task. Simply try to stand with your knees flexed at 45 degrees for five minutes and you will see how impossible it is. As the strength of the legs gives out, the weight of the body must now be borne by the arms and the shoulders. The result is that within a few minutes of being placed on the cross, the shoulders will become dislocated. Minutes later, the elbows and wrists become dislocated. The result of these dislocations is that the arms are as much as six to nine inches longer than normal. With the arms now dislocated, considerable body weight is transferred to the chest, causing the rib cage to be elevated in a state of perpetual inhalation. Mm -hmm. 
Consequently, in order to exhale, the victim must push down, placing their full weight on the nail that is driven through their feet to allow their rib muscles to relax. The problem is that the victim cannot push very long because of the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet and in addition to the legs being extremely fatigued. As time goes on, the victim is less and less able to bear his weight on his legs, causing him to sink and further dislocation of the arms and further raising of the chest wall to commence, making breathing more and more difficult. Great waves of cramps then sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but it cannot be exhaled. The result of this process is a series of catastrophic physiological effects. Because the victim cannot maintain adequate ventilation of the lungs, the blood oxygen level begins to diminish and the blood carbon dioxide level begins to rise. This rising CO2 level stimulates the heart to beat faster in order to increase the delivery of oxygen and the removal of CO2. However, due to the pinning of the victim and the limitations of oxygen delivery, the victim cannot deliver more oxygen and the rising heart rate only increases the oxygen demand. So this process sets up a vicious cycle of increasing oxygen demand, which cannot be met, followed by an ever-increasing heart rate. And after several hours of this, the heart begins to fail. The lungs collapse and fill up with fluid, which further de decreases oxygen delivery to the tissues. The blood loss and hyperventilation combines to cause severe dehydration, and this is why the Gospels record Jesus saying, I thirst. Over a period of several hours, the combination of collapsing lungs, a failing heart, dehydration, and the inability to get adequate oxygen supply to the tissues causes the eventual death of the victim. The victim, in effect, cannot breathe properly and slowly suffocates to death. In cases of severe cardiac stress, such as crucifixion, a victim's heart can even burst. This process is called cardiac rupture. Therefore, it could be truly said that Jesus indeed died of a broken heart. Why did I want to read that to you guys? I don't read it to be morbid. I don't read it to glory in the gruesome details. I read it for one reason. Because on Good Friday, we are here to remember the ugliness of our sin. We are here to remember the great cost of our sin. We are here to remember what the cost or what our Savior did on the, on the cross, the price he paid for our salvation. He didn't just go to the cross. He didn't just get crucified. He suffered a radically horrible death. And here's the clincher. That was for us. That was for me. That was for you. That was because of our sin. And a man who was perfect, who had never done anything wrong, never sinned in a single way, God in the flesh said, I will step into your place and pay that price for you. If anybody ever thinks, I can't quite understand the love of God, just think of what he did for you on the cross. There is no greater love than what he did for us. The scriptures say that there is no greater love than a brother would lay down their life for a brother. Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. And it was his life he laid down for us. I share this because I want us all to remember of what should have been poured out on us for our sin. Because sin is a major issue. You know, it's been said, and, and we say this tongue-in-cheek, but you know, if we just stopped sinning, everything would be better. 
right? If we weren't selfish sinners, we wouldn't fight with our spouses and fight with our friends and we wouldn't be you know, cha- challenged with looking at stuff we shouldn't be looking at or saying things we shouldn't be saying. If just sin was dealt with, we wouldn't have to worry about it. But sometimes we as believers acknowledge that, that we sin and we acknowledge our sin and we acknowledge that we've done wrong, but we don't take it real seriously. At least we don't take it seriously enough to do something about it to maybe stop sinning. We say things where, you know, well, gosh, I, I can't put a filter on my computer because I need to be able to do X, Y, Z, and we still sin. I can't accept blame for something I didn't do, and so I'm gonna keep defending myself and arguing my position and never extending forgiveness and mercy in any argument. Sin is a major issue. Sin should never be taken lightly, flippantly, or without serious regard. And what we see in the cross is the full judgment of God being poured out on Jesus that day. We see the wrath of God against sin being poured out. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it tells us that he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. To be sin for us. Jesus became our sin on the cross. Having no sin of his own, he became our sin so that God could judge it. And because he became sin, God was able to then pour out everything that he had in him against sin. All his wrath, all his anger, all his judgment against it. Everything that Jesus suffered on that cross reminds us of how much God hates sin, or at least it should. It should remind us how God feels about sin. And in the moment of our disobedience and our sin, what this did to me years ago has caused me to go, wait a second. Jesus went through that for what I'm about to do that is disobedient to God. Maybe I don't want to do that. Maybe I shouldn't do that. Because it rips our lives apart. Sin destroys and God hates it. It rips our lives apart. It suffocates our love and kindness. It dislocates our relationships. It causes the deepest, most intense pain physically and emotionally. And Jesus had to die the way he died because God wanted to deal with sin brutally, completely, finally. And he did. He did on the cross. Now in verse 33, it goes on to tell us that When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. So at the very hottest and brightest part of the day, when the sun was at its peak, as Jesus was dying on the cross, going through that process of trying to catch his breath and trying to breathe, it tells us that darkness covered the whole land. To me, that's a picture of what took place in Egypt in Exodus chapter 10 as the darkness covered the whole land, and I believe as in Egypt, this darkness uh, covering the land was a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality. The spiritual reality is that there is a darkness in our hearts. There is a darkness in mankind. John chapter three, verse 19 and 20 says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. 
You know, when we share the gospel with people and we tell them both the good news and the bad news of the gospel, and we want to tell them, you know, God loves you so much and he, he, he died for your sin, right? And the bad news is you're a sinner. You've sinned against God and his judgment is going to come upon you without the blood of Christ to forgive you. You need Jesus Christ. When we're communicating that to people and they come back at us with all these objections and, well, what about this and what about that? And, you know, and all the stuff that we go through in our talking, it's never about the objection that people have. It's always about the fact that they're in darkness and they don't want to come into the light. Mankind in its sinful darkness, its sinful state, does not want what they do exposed. Does not want the horrible crimes they commit and their sinful behavior to be proclaimed to the world. They want it in darkness. And it tells us there that this was the judgment that the light has come into the world but the people love the darkness rather than the light. And I believe at noon on the day that Jesus was crucified, darkness fell as the light of the world became the sin of the entire world. Verse 34, it says, then at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And then in verse 37 tells us Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. You know, as a student of the Bible, in reading the Bible and praying about what it means and how it applies to our lives, a good habit to have is to pay attention to details. This is God's word. Every letter is there by God's design. And so the details are important. They always have a meaning. And so as we're looking at the story, one of the things that comes out to me is why are they so determined to make sure that we know this happened at nine in the morning, and this happened at noon, and this happened at three o'clock? Why are they so concerned? Why, why are those details there? Well, it's because at that time in Israel, the people of Israel had what was called the perpetual sacrifice or the continual sacrifice. And it was a sacrifice that they did in the temple every single day as prescribed in the Old Testament as a sin offering to pay for the sins of the people. And they had to do this sacrifice every single day because guess what? We sing sin every single day. And so this perpetual sacrifice involved bringing two lambs in. They would bring one in the morning and they would sacrifice it and burn it on the altar. And they would bring one in the afternoon and they would sacrifice it and burn it on the altar. And so what happened is that 24 hours a day, there was always the presence of a sacrificial lamb on the altar before God to cover the sins of the people. Now what's interesting is this daily sin offering for the people, what would happen is at dawn, they would bring out the first spotless lamb. Spotless, meaning no blemish the picture of having no sin. And they would bring out this first spotless lamb at dawn and tie it to the altar in preparation of its sacrifice. In a sense, condemning the lamb. And then at 9 a.m., that first lamb was then sacrificed and burnt on the altar. At noon, they would bring the second lamb out and tie it to the altar in preparation. And then at three o'clock, that second lamb would then be sacrificed and burnt up. And in that way, there was always the presence of this atoning lamb on the altar. Well, when we look at the story of Jesus' crucifixion and what happened on this Good Friday, 
at dawn. We read in the Gospels that Jesus was then condemned by the Sanhedrin. It was at dawn as they were asking him, are you the Messiah? Say it, we dare you. And if you remember, he goes, it is as you say. Oh! Condemn him, kill him. He has blasphemed. At 9 a.m., he was crucified on the cross, just like that first lamb. At noon, the sun turns dark as Jesus becomes sin for us at the same time that second lamb was condemned to die. And then at 3 p.m., it tells us in the Gospels that he perished. The pictures are the same. The spotless lamb that Israel was, was, was observing, the sacrifice of these lambs every single day for decades, centuries at this point, that they had been following these laws. They say, every day we're doing this. And, and as a part of that whole perpetual sacrifice, they had these prayers that they would do as a part of the whole ritual of it. And in these prayers included things like, God, please forgive us of our sin. God, we do this looking forward to the Messiah. God, we're waiting for the, for the sacrifice to come. God, we're doing this in, in anticipation of you paying the price for our sins once and for all one day. And at the same exact time, they're in the temple doing that. Outside the city walls, the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the sacrifice is being crucified, is dying for the sins of the entire world. And it was precisely when these Passover lambs were being burnt up on the altar of sacrifice, because remember, this was Passover week. It was precisely when they were being burnt up on the altar Precisely when the high priests were, were, were sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat as the atonement here because that was taking place during this time. It was precisely at that moment that the Lamb of God who said not a word before his accusers cries out to his Father and breathes his last. And this cry of distress that Jesus lets out, I don't believe it was a cry caused by the pain of crucifixion. It was caused by the most horrible fruit of sin, the most despicable fruit of sin, separation from God. As Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from our creator. As I said earlier, sin cannot dwell in the presence of God. And we are sinful people and sinful creatures. And God said, I love you, and I want to have a relationship with you, and I want to have fellowship with you. And, and, but, but sin cannot dwell in my presence, and there's nothing you can do to pay the price. Aha, I will pay the price for you. And because the wages of sin is death, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, I will die. I will shed my blood. I will be the atoning sacrifice on the altar so that you can then freely get the benefit of my life, my righteousness, that you could be deemed spotless. You could be deemed without sin by faith in what I've done for you. For the first time ever, going all the way back into eternity past, God the Son was separated from God the Father by our sin, by what you and I do. Verse 37, he let out that loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Again, details matter at that very moment. 
God the Father in heaven, I believe himself in unimaginable agony. God the Son dies on the cross, breathes his last, la- breathes his last pays the price, it's done. And what does God the Father do? He immediately reaches down into creation, reaches down into his temple, which is his dwelling place on earth, reaches inside into the holy place. And there was this place inside the temple that represented the presence of the Holy Spirit, and it was a picture, and we've seen it in Revelation, right? A picture of the very throne room of God. But here on earth, there was this veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the holy of holies, where God's presence resided on earth. And because God's presence was so perfect and so holy, there had to be this veil separating the two. Otherwise, the glory would just burn up mankind. And this veil was 18 inches thick. It wasn't just some bed sheet hanging to separate one space from another. It was this massive curtain. Massive curtain. And it tells us that God reached down and ripped it in half. And notice the detail. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It wasn't a work that man did. It was a work that God did. The veil of the temple being torn top to bottom demonstrates that it was God alone who could remove the barrier between himself and his creation. It was God alone who could do that work. And he did that, ripped that veil down because the atoning sacrifice had been made, the price had been paid once and all for you and once and all for me. How glorious. That's what we remember when we look at the cross. The great price paid for us. And this is why Jesus had to die. He had to die because it was only a perfect, spotless, sinless offering that could possibly pay the price for our despicable and vain and proud and hateful disobedience. That was what they had been observing for for so long in the temple, and Jesus was that perfect, spotless lamb. When we look to the cross that Jesus died on, we remember how serious sin is. We remember how devastating sin is. We remember how God feels about sin, how he sees sin, and it's not no big deal, and it's not, oh, whatever, and it's not, it's deadly. And when we look to the cross that Jesus died on, we remember that God made Jesus to to be sin so that we could be forgiven. The Bible tells us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. I love that aspect of this whole deal. Jesus, who never did anything wrong, goes to the cross and pays my price. And then I say, God, I believe in that. I put my faith in that. Thank you. I trust in that. And he says, okay, well, not only am I going to pay the price for your sin, but then I'm going to give you my perfection, my righteousness. I'm going to adopt you into my family. I'm not just going to leave you a pardoned criminal out in the cold. No, I'm going to bring you into my house as my child. Not only did he pay the greatest price, price, he gave us the greatest benefit. And it's because he died on the cross. But here we come back to the good news. Right? Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When was it that Jesus suffered what he suffered for your sin? Was it after you cleaned your act up? No. Was it when you uh, got it together? No. 
When is when, was it when you figured out how to stop doing all the bad stuff and be a good person? No. He died for your sin while you were still a sinner. Other translations renders that word sinner there as his enemy. While you were still his enemy. While you were still fighting against him. While you still raised your fist against him and cursed his name and blasphemed who he was. And I hate you, God, and you're not real and, and all this. It was then he went through what he went through on the cross for you and for me. He died for every single human being. He suffered what each one of us should have suffered while we were standing against him, knowing every evil act, every word, every evil thought that we have and ever will commit. Do you doubt that Jesus loves you? Do you in any way think he doesn't? There is no powerful love than this. This is how valuable you are to God. This is how much he cares about you. This is how much he loves you. Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. For the joy that laid before him. You know what that joy is? You. The joy that laid before him is you. To have a relationship with you. To have a restored fellowship with you. The joy of that restored relationship between you and him. The joy of having the effect and power and control of sin dealt with once and for all in your life. The joy of making you clean and forgiven and and just washed clear of all sin permanently and forever. And able to enter into the very presence of God into a perfect loving fellowship with him. You know, the night before this horrible, horrible thing happened, Jesus sat in the upper room with his disciples and was partaking of his final Passover meal with them. We call this the Lord's Supper. We remember and observe this in communion is what we're going to be taking here in a moment. And the whole process of communion is where we remember the price that he paid for our salvation. The whole process of the the bread And the juice follows the example and the teaching he gave to his disciples the night before he went through what he went through to say, this is my body given for you. And this is my blood shed for you. And we take communion, we remember his death in communion because we never want to forget what the cost of our sin was. This is why I believe this year I was just like, look, I've, I've, I've shared that medical stuff before. I've, I've shared some of these details before. And Jesus is like, yeah, but a memorial exists so you don't forget why. That is why in the Old Testament they would be like, something great happened here, build a memorial. Something great happened over here, build a memorial. Why? Because next year people would want to walk by and go, oh yeah, there was something that took place here, but I want to remember the details. And then two years later, they're going to go by and go, yeah, that, that, that event that took place there, we still want to remember the details. And remember why this memorial is there. And that's what we do in communion. We remember his body brutalized and beaten for us, taking the full wrath of God on sin. We remember his shed blood spilled out on the altar, if you will, for the remissions of sin. And so tonight, this Good Friday, we're going to remember the cost of our salvation. 
and the great love that paid the price that we would be forgiven. So every single one of you that came in the room tonight, you should have gotten one of these communion cups. If you didn't, please raise your hand where you're seated and Pastor Rick will scan the room to make sure you get one. So if you didn't get one, raise your hand up and keep it up until you have a communion cup. If you're watching online, I encourage you to get your communion emblems ready now um, because this is a moment where we will be taking communion together. Quick instructions on these cups that we got, guys. There's two little plastic tabs on the front, a very thin one and a thicker one, okay? If you pull back on the very thin one very carefully, it'll reveal the wafer here, the bread that is in the top of this cup. But on that night when Jesus was with his disciples celebrating this last supper, the night before he was gonna go to the cross and he was full aware of what was going on because we read in the garden he was begging his father if there's any other way. Please let this cup pass from me. But nonetheless, not my will, your will be done. He knew what was coming and he went anyways. This bread is, is remembering part of remembering what he did. And so as he was there with his disciples, he said, look, he, it tells us he took the bread and then he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And they all partook of the bread. He wanted us to remember and know every time we do this, that what he went through in his body, that his sinless, spotless body was given for our not so sinless body. That his perfection was, was laid on the altar and the wrath of God was poured on his body instead of us. How he took the full wrath of God for all sin and all unrighteousness upon himself in your place. Why? Because he loves you. Because he knew there was nothing you could do to pay the price. He knew there was no way you could possibly atone for your own sin, and so he had to do it. We all deserve the judgment for sin. We all deserve the judgment for violating God's law, violating his will. Yeah, we do. But because God loved you and me so much, he stepped into our place and paid the price. And if you ever forget how great that price was, just for a moment... Think about what it means when it says he was crucified. He did all that so we could step into his place. As he stepped into our place on the altar, we could step into his place in a perfect fellowship with God Almighty, being spotless, being blameless, being without blemish. You know, the brokenness of our fallen sinful nature and the fractured fellowship that, that we once had with our creator, it's made whole by his sacrifice. It's made whole by his death. It is truly by his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed. And that is what we remember by partaking of this bread in communion. So join me in prayer right now. Say, Father, God, we thank you so much. We pray together, Lord, as the body of Christ to remember what you did for us this Good Friday as you died on the cross for our sins. Lord, as your perfect blood was shed so that we would, would enjoy the forgiveness. God, the, the, the horror of what you went through. Lord, as you broke this bread apart, Lord, we know that not a single bone in your body was broken to fulfill scripture, but we do know that you were devastated bodily. 
that you suffered horribly for sin, for us, to pay the price, God. And we say thank you. We remember that. And God, we are so grateful that you stepped into our place, that you took what was for us so that through faith you could give us what was yours. And that God, now that when you look at us, you see us as spotless and blameless. Lord, we are so broken, God, mentally and emotionally. Physically, Lord, we live in a world of death and decay and dying, Lord, and God, we ask that you would heal us. That the fruit of sin in this world that has resulted in so much damage, Lord, you would heal us. That you would heal our minds and heal our emotions and heal our body, but most importantly, heal our spirit, God. So, Lord, we say thank you. We love you, Lord, so much. Let's partake together. All right, if you're in the room and you have the plastic cup, now pull back the thicker plastic tab, but be very careful as you do so because we don't want to spill. But in the Gospels, it tells us that Jesus then took the cup and he said to his disciples, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. He wanted us to remember that mercy that was granted to us just as the blood of the lamb was sprinkled on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. That the blood of Christ was sprinkled on the mercy seat of God's throne on our behalf. That the blood was shed for us, permanently shed to garner for us, not just a forgiveness from the sin that we have committed, but as I said, also being then made children of God washed clean, adopted into his family, made co-heirs with Christ. So much we definitely don't deserve, but we're granted through our faith in God himself. He said, remember that my blood was shed for you. And it's not a sacrifice that happens, it has to happen every day, twice a day, it was once for all. That Jesus paid the price for every sin you've ever committed and every sin you ever will commit. He pioneered the way, Hebrews tells us. He cleared the path that we could have perfect fellowship and union with our creator. And we're only able to have that fellowship because of the blood that washes us clean. We were made whole. We were washed clean by his perfect blood and in the eyes of God, not even a stain of sin remains. Not even a stain. Instead, it's the righteousness of Christ being imputed to us. And it's in communion we remember that. We remember that. And in unending gratitude, we say thank you and commit our lives to living in thankful obedience to God Almighty. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you, Lord. We know that your death on the cross, your perfect bloodshed was what was sprinkled onto the mercy seat of God's throne. That it's because of your blood and your payment of the price, God, that we're able to plead forgiveness. 
We're able to plead for that grace and that mercy, and you grant that to us through our faith in Jesus Christ, Lord. And it is only because of Jesus Christ that we are able to find that grace and that mercy. And God, we are so grateful that in your eyes, because we have been washed by the blood of Christ that was shed on the altar, that you then are able to look at us and see us as you created us to be, Lord. To see us spotless and sinless, Lord. And God, here on this earth, we are called to not only remember this, but to, but to live for that. To trust in you, God, that we would be able to be the people you've called us to be. Not living in disobedience, but instead living in obedience. One day, God, we look forward to the time where we will be with you in heaven forever. But while we're here on earth, God, we want to remember the price that was paid for us. Help us to live our lives in thankful gratitude, in thankful obedience, to live our lives in a way that glorify your name and proclaim the, the just massive understanding we have of what you did for us. We love you. We thank you. Let's partake together. I heard a story this morning. It's actually a video Pastor Gary sent me. That's what it was. And it was a famous sermon. And it was this pastor talking about how he was preaching at his church. And he was talking about, you know, at his particular church, people were very vocal in response. And he was just like, yeah, the more vocal they are, the more excited I'd get, right? And so one day he was preaching at the church and and he was like, man, I did good. Everybody was like, amen. And they were just screaming. And he just felt like, yeah, I nailed it, right? So he sat down on the pew after his sermon and the senior pastor was there and he's like, hey, I did good. I did good, right? The pastor's like, well, you know, you, you did pretty good. He's like, no, I nailed it. I nailed it. And the pastor goes, son, let me show you how it's done. He goes, then he got up there and for an hour and 15 minutes preached one line. He said, it was Friday and darkness covered the land, but Sunday is coming. It's Friday, and the disciples were grieving and hurting, but Sunday was coming. And for an hour and 15 minutes, he just kept repeating that line, and everybody was just so excited. Why? Because Sunday is coming. And sure, on Good Friday, it's kind of like, oh man, there's a heaviness. But on Sunday is the resurrection. Sunday is going from the darkness to the light. Sunday is the picture of the power of sin and death being defeated forever. And I cannot wait to celebrate that with all of you. We're going to be here 6 a.m. for sunrise here in our sanctuary and 10 a.m. We've got a two-part message going on. So if you're like, is it going to be the same thing? No. Come to both, okay? But I'm excited to celebrate the resurrection with you. But it starts as we celebrate that good news, we can't forget the bad news, the cost of our sin. But we don't just dwell in that. We let that motivate us to live for Jesus, to live the life he purchased for us in freedom from sin, in obedience to him and to the glory of his name. Amen? Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Let's worship.